0: This is CliffCentral.com
1: You're listening to The Bounce Show with Byron Kopinski I'm Hugh Bladen and it's on CliveCentral.com Um, it's Cliff Central Blades and it's Ben Kopinski Why didn't you tell me? Ben Kopinski on CliveCentral.com
0: What up y'all? Yeah, soundtrack what's poppin' baby? Y'all ain't know me, I go by the name of Lupe Piasco, representing that first and 15, years, uh, and this one right here, I dedicate this one right here, to all my homies out there grinding, you know what I'm saying, legally and illegally, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, so, check it out, uh, First got it when he was six, didn't know he tricks. Matter of fact, first time he got on it slipped, landed on his hip and busted his lip. For a week he had to talk with a list like this. Now oh. we can end the happy, happy Monday. After a frenetic weekend of sport, I thought I'd just bring it down a touch with some Lupe fiasco. Something so appealing, he couldn't fight the feeling, something about it, he knew he couldn't doubt it. Yeah, so the Euros are done, uh, Wimbledon's done, the British Grand Prix is done, uh, what else is done? So much, so much stuff. So many good things to get into sport-wise today. So many good things to look forward to as well. You are here with The Bounce Show with me, Ben Kopinski. Thank you so much for joining me as always. I know you do it every week and I do appreciate you for that. Yeah, the Euros, well... A massive surprise, I guess. Something else can be said about it. If you want a very much in-depth view on what was happening throughout the Euros of the weekend at a big catch-up, you must catch the Voila podcast. That is the show that goes before me on a Monday here on cliffcentral.com. Go onto cliffcentral.com, the website, and you'll be able to find, uh, in special guests there. Really, really great show and, uh, it's a multitude of great guests and insights. So with that done, I'm going to bring in Keegan Kruger from Soccer La Duma. Now, Keegan is, well, yeah, he's, you know, he's, you know, so much more about football than I do. It goes without saying. So Keegan's going to join us in about 20 minutes and we'll go through the Euros, talk about what it meant, the tournament, the intricacies, the nuances of it, what we could take out of it, and a little touch on just uh, the transfer window because that's what happens in football, right? There is the real season, then there's the transfer season, which is going to when All the players are on summer holidays recouping a little bit, and then the agents are just looking for cash, looking to suck clubs dry. And There's a couple of transfers at the moment that are looking to suck a lot of things dry. Then, uh, second guest for today is going to be Barry Hafengraf from Golf Digest Magazine. You know Barry's our go-to golf guy. And it doesn't get much bigger than the Open Championship, which is going to take place this week. All the favorites, what to look out for there? I also want to kind of just uh, pick his brain a bit on some Olympic stuff. And even touch on the Ryder Cup if we get enough time. I know the Ryder Cup's still a few months away, but it's a big deal. It's a big deal. America looking to finally win the thing after Europe being so dominant for so long. So you've got a great show ahead of you, you really do. But then again, you expect nothing less. I mean, obviously, with all the hours and prep I put into the show, only good things can come from it. So what we're going to start the show with today is kind of a guess at the sport. Now, we've never done this before, so here we are trying a new little feature. Let's play guess the sport i'm going to play you a clip and when you're listening you can just tell me what it is if you do want to get involved on in the show today you can call in at any time i really do neglect this whole live feature if you do listen live and i do apologize but if you are listening to us live 0861 555 189 that is the studio phone number here or just on twitter get me at follow the bounce or on wechat just the simple cliff central official account there so all right let's get into this before we get to the headlines let's play guess the sport
1: ...está tocando al toro con mucho mimo... ...echando mucho los vuelos... ...y todo lo que ha estado haciendo el toro... ...que ha sido más bien... ...me que parecer un toro bruto ¿no?... ...por, por sus reacciones...
2: El tereta le vio... ...a Víctor Barrio el toro... ...y vamos a ver porque le ha atrapado ahí entre los pitones... ...momento de peligro está... ...boca abajo el torero, se llevan al toro... ...le ha podido herir... ...vamos a ver si el toro puede salir de ahí... ...y si pueden incorporar a Víctor Barrio...
0: <inaudible> Any guesses? Any guesses? Yes, correct. That was bullfighting. Yes, well done. Bullfighting, that was that. It's uh, basically what happened over the weekend is a bullfighter called Victor. Victor is one of the best in Spain right now. Okay, but he tried to bring out quite a bad move, and then ba- bang. Bull kind of hit him in the chest, and he's dead. Yeah, well, you know, you got to think that you're in a sport where you dress up like a trumped-up dandy. Only bad things can happen to you. Miraculously, though, he's only the second bull uh, fighter to have died since the 18, 1985, I think it was. So unlucky for Victor, but I mean, you know, you you, you live by the sword, you die by the bull. You know what they say. So Victor goes down. I'm sure the bull still gets killed. Now this is the horrible you know, imbalance of these sports. So uh, the bull, all 556 kilograms of him, is probably now on a plate. But good for you, bull. Bull's name isn't specified in this clip. Great technique, he really. He dropped the head, he extended the horn, and then bang, in the chest, and Victor was pretty much done. I know you might think I'm sounding a but screw it. Bullfighting is a stupid sport, and uh, too many bulls die. And yes, you always know I take the animal front. If you know from the from the morning show here on Cliff Central. So that was Guest Sport, but now we need to get into the headlines because what a spiffy weekend it was. Huh? And I'm going to start with probably the least expected start you can possibly think of. Here we go.
1: And the Wimbledon champion of 2016, Andy
2: Murray.
0: Yep, old Andy Coppertop Murray, second Wimbledon trophy amazing effort. He, well, straight sets victory over Milos Reynichu. I think is going to be a fantastic talent going forward. He really is. This game just needs a little, a little a bit of a fine tune here and there, but the guy's got power, he's got pace, he's got poise, he's got lots of things starting with P, and uh I think this guy's going to be a real one to watch out for in future. Andy, on the other hand, well, what can we say about Andy? Um, um, Well, he's... <sighs> He's got two Wimbledon titles, okay? That's what I can say about him. He's a good player. He's got a Wimbledon gold, sorry, an Olympic gold as well. He's not quite as good as Djokovic, but he kind of proved over this weekend, right? Federer's on his way out. Nadell's left arm can't be relied upon anymore. There's a new breed that are coming through slowly but surely, but... Murray's actually a really, really solid, brilliant tennis player. His game is quite similar to Djokovic's, right? But he's just slightly more clinical, not quite as flamboyant and fantastic. So I think, you know, if two players, if the both had to come together on the same court and they both had played their best games, Djokovic will still win. But the thing about Andy is that he's getting better and better, but like in small increments. It's such a stage where yesterday, in my mind, it was a foregone conclusion. The fact that Rainish couldn't win the first set meant that he was done and dusted. You know, a couple of hours later, there he was, straight sets loser. But Andy Murray's game is just so good because it's suited to all all surfaces. He's a hard worker. He's uh he's very clever with the serve. He uses power wisely. He's a bloody good player. Of course, none of us can really appreciate that for more than three seconds. As I've said, that you've already forgotten because he's just a, such a tool and he's just such an uninspiring git, really. But well done to Andy. That's the second um, Grand Slam title for him, and it's it's a big thing for tennis because Djokovic will no not come back firing. Uh, I'm pretty sure is done now. And I I'd hate to say it because, you know, people do still do well in their thirties, but let's go on to bigger stories. Cause for me, this is a much bigger story. It is Serena Williams with a 22nd Grand Slam title. Now, I, I, I like to use this reference just to kind of give you an impression of how amazing Serena is, right? Now, Tiger Woods, that we all know, changed the face of golf. He was amazing. He was an incredible athlete and he did something to the game that, well, it, quite frankly was needed and um he's won 14 grandson tr- totals if you put it in tennis sense he's won 14 majors but Serena's 122 okay she's 34 now so she's she's getting on in, in in anyone's terms modern terms 34 is quite a mature age so she's 122 so straight away the comparison is with Steffi Graf right now Steffi Graf Stefania what's her real name is Steffi anyway uh Steffi Graf 88% Point, 88.7% win percentage in her matches, right? Serena, 85.8. So the comparisons are always going to be between the two. You couldn't get two more unlikely kind of uh, superstars. You know, Serena's all power. She really is. But she manages that power so well. Where Steffi was a lot of the time was precision, um, you know, efficiency of movement. Just two great champions look on, on two sides of the scale. Another great stat here. Weeks at number one. Steffi Graf, 377. Serena, 301. Wins versus top five opponents. Now, Steffi Graf had 101, Serena 108. So they're beating the best of the best. Grand Slam titles, of course, 22 each. And, uh, with no disrespect to Margaret Court. Her 24 title doesn't quite match up with these two superstars of the modern game. There's no ways that we can ever, we can ever compare, really. It's just two different things. I mean, the one wore a dress, a corset, and probably stopped for tea and crumpets halfway through her match. Whereas these two are modern professionals, modern athletes. And again, stop with the patronizing crap. Oh, Serena's one of the best female athletes ever. She's one of the greatest athletes ever. When you just think, you know, she grew up in, in the, the shadow of Venus. Um her sister, of course, and we're talking in, in mythological terms. Uh she grew up in the shadow of Venus and she went on and just kind of created her own career and she superseded Venus on every single facet of play. What an incredible uh champion. And I hope that's not the hope there's gonna be more Grand Slam's in her. It'd be great just for the argument's sake that she wins another three, so therefore the whole Margaret Court um you know like nonsensical debates is just completely out of the window and she definitely deserves it It is a a woman who's given so much to the sport and just so much to sport in general really uh she also won the women's doubles with her sister serena so it was a massive sorry with a a double sister (laughs) with a sister in the doubles venus so an amazing weekend there for the for the serena family uh the williams family so much so beyonce was even in the box with with, the parents. So that was Wimbledon. Wimbledon was really cool. Uh, Super Rugby. We'll move on to that one very quickly now. We've got Keegan Kruger coming up in about 10 minutes. We're going to talk all things, uh, football. Keegan is, of course, from Soccer La Duma. So that's a publication which is a huge authority here in SA and Africa. But to look at the, the Super Rugby while I make sure that I get through everything without losing too much time. Super Rugby for the weekend was, well, how, what a bizarre weekend. We think about it. Some real one-sided affairs here. The Blues, 40-15 over the Brumbies. Okay, the Brumbies are going to finish, well, they're going to win their conference, which means they're finished like second in the Australasian League, even though they've only got, well, they've got nothing compared to the New Zealand team points-wise. The only team that was worse off than them on the log was the Blues. And quite ironically, they got stuffed by that team. 40-15, the Blues winning at home. The Reds hosted the Chiefs, uh, New Zealand's top side, and they took a hammering. 50 points to five. Wow, it is a hammering. The Lions started off really slowly at home against the Kings. Now, the Kings looked very spirited for the first 20 minutes, like they had done throughout the season. Class came through there. So Friday night's win there was 57-21 to the Lions. So the Lions are runaway victors in the African Conference, the African Combined Conference. they top side. They're going to finish number one. And the fact is they did it while playing New Zealand teams as well. The Stormers have qualified as the second-best South African team. Uh, they beat the Force 22-3 away, uh, but they didn't play a single New Zealand team. So all credit to the Lions. The longer the season goes on, the better these guys look. Really, really exceptional, exceptional team. Crusaders, they took on the Rebels. Now, the Rebels took 50 points last week to the Stormers, and every Stormers fan, including me, was like, yay, this is amazing, what a huge win. Well, the Crusaders... They're 85 points, and at one stage of the second half, I think they went 12 minutes without scoring. So there's some perspective there. And also there's just evidence that this tournament is too long. It's too bloated. It's just not it's, – it's becoming a bit of a joke. 85-26, huge, huge win there. Waratahs, they hosted um, Australian – sorry, New Zealand-side Hurricanes. They lost that one 17-28. Another loss for the Aussies. The Force, they took, as I mentioned already, three Stormers 22. The Bulls, a little bit too... Too little, too late. Really, they beat the Sunwolves fifty points to three, but they're all going to finish behind the Sharks. They needed the Sharks to lose to the Cheetahs, which wasn't going to happen, despite despite the fact that the Sharks' scrum looks very, very ropey. Twenty six ten, they did beat the Cheetahs in the end, and then the Jaguars at home. Well, they're just look, looking to be a spanner in someone's works so at this time of the season. They, I think, they've only won three games the whole season, so they're so far away from the, the playoffs. But they lost to the Highlanders, eight points of 34 was the Highlanders of the victors there so what does this all mean right well first of all first of all the Australians let's just get into quickly how terrible they were over the weekend they cumulatively out amongst all their teams they scored 66 points opposition against them this weekend scored 225 yeah it's pretty embarrassing right log points for the Aussie teams this weekend zero log points for the teams playing against Aussie teams 24 so yeah, something's going to happen here. It's, it has to happen. It really does because New Zealand teams are every year. They're just so strong. Aussie teams aren't great, but I mean, I'm saying that in full, full, um, cognizance of the fact that the SA teams are a hell of a lot better. Sure. We've got the Lions and the Stormers who are pretty consistent and there's sharks and bulls of potential. Aussies though, wow, downward spiral. They really are. There's no ways that they've got the players to make up five teams. And, uh, the fact that the Reds went from title holders to well dog shit really. That's just even more um of an indictment of where the rugby is right now. So to look ahead for this weekend, right? So now we've already ascertained that the Lions they're great. They've kind of won their thing. But the big question for this week is going ahead now and you can see it in all over the press. What do the Lions do with their trip to the Jaguaris? Do they take a full-strength team? Do they play a full-strength team? Do they play the bench? Do they try um eliminate the chance of injuries? Or do they just try and get more momentum going for their playoff campaign? They, by all um, by all um value, are going to play the Sharks, I think, in their first quarterfinal at home. So you think they're definitely going to win that one. Uh, but what momentum will they take from this trip to the Jaguars? It'll be a nice little maybe like a team-building kind of thing for these guys to go over there. Have a little trip to South America. The only problem is time constraints. It is a shit trip. It really is because you can't just fly to Argentina. You pretty much got to go via Sao Paulo, okay, which is a terrible, horrible airport. So it's a very long and arduous trip, this one, just to pop over and play the Juggie Waters. Again, it has no real meaning in this tournament right now. So I wish the Lions all the best and whatever their strategy may be. Cheetahs versus Bulls, they'll take on each other this weekend for a match that means absolutely nothing. The Stormers will be at home to the Kings. Again, it's nice to tune up before the qualifiers. not going to really change their log position. And the Sharks for the same with them. They're going to take on the Sun Nice and easy match to kind of, you know, get the confidence up before the playoffs. But more interesting enough though, um, who's going to decide the top of the New Zealand conference? You know, you've got Crusaders versus the Hurricanes this coming weekend. So they'll take place Saturday at 7.50. And you've got the Highlanders versus the Chiefs at 9.35. So, it may be the last weekend. Um, the top eight teams are kind of decided already, but where they finish is crucial, of course, because the higher you go, the more chance you've got of being at home as the competition goes on. So look out for those two games: Crusaders versus Hurricanes, 7:15 on Saturday; Highlanders versus Chiefs, 9:35 on Saturday. Right. Okay. So what have we covered so far? We've covered the tennis. We've covered. Uh, rugby. We've covered um, I don't know. My memory's terrible. we covered covered bullfighting. I know that's a big staple in the show. Bullfighting is very important. But let's just hear Andy Murray's speech again, why don't we?
2: Milos
1: was throwing everything at you. Serves over 140 miles an hour. He was coming in at
0: you. You had to be at your best and you were. Yeah, I played really good (laughs) stuff. (laughs) Milos has had a great few weeks on, on the grass and you know, had some unbelievable wins this match against Roger in the semis. I don't know how many people that are here today were watching that but it was a great, great match and um yeah, I find like being too critical of Andy's quite boring nowadays because it's just, you know, everyone's kind of flogged him. He's a bit of a dead horse but he, he is a dead horse. Just us listen to this. Improve and get better and each time we play against like, yeah, each other he's made big improvements and he also has an extremely nice team um, as well. Carlos uh, Ricardo and, uh, okay I mean first of all Andy first first language English right yeah correct so we can't judge him on that one but I mean the guy's just one woman for the second time this is the biggest thing it's such a huge part of his career it really is kind of announcing the fact that he's not just a one hit pony and he's a real deal tennis-wise yeah? but gee he sounds sad like but he sounds like Oscar did on on the stand the guy sounds terribly unhappy <laughs> He's just lucky. Um. <laughs> That's him joking? No, I mean... My <laughs> anyway, enough of that. Let's not, let's not kick Andy while he's there. You know, he is what he is, okay? I think, you know, our expectations should be put in check for certain sports stars, especially Andy. But it's a big deal, though, with Ivan Edel returning to his corner. Um, you know, he had... Um, that guy's name um Emily Moresmo was his was his previous previous coach even Lendl's come back and straight away you know even Lendl was in the camp when Andy won his won his first Grand Slam and uh Lendl came back and well obviously they they worked together they're both sour of face but huge of talent so good on Andy to find find his sporting bow so to speak another thing I want to chat to you about from the weekend was the biggest deadlift of all time yeah, we're chopping and changing quite a lot here, I know. But anyway, bear with me. Uh, a dude called Eddie Hall, right? Now, when you think deadlifting, you think the guy who's going to have the world record is clearly going to be the mountain from Game of Thrones, right? Nope. It is Andy. Now, Andy. Sorry, Eddie. <laughs> Andy. See, Murray's killing everything in my sport. I'm trying to be compassionate towards him. He's just ruining it. Eddie Hall deadlifted 500 kilograms. Now, if you want to know what that sounds like, it's kind of like this. as a crowd cheering a man picking up half a ton now the interesting thing about this is that you're thinking right deadlifting right it's like anything else you go up in increments and then you get the world's best and that will be however many this dude 500 kilograms right this is the first time I done it and this is what he said after this that nearly killed me <laughs> This dude, he said, that nearly killed me. The pressure on my body was surreal. I passed out afterwards. I had nosebleeds. <laughs> it's not healthy doing something like that, but I've done it, and I'm sure I'll be in the history books for a very long time now. But can you imagine that? You've got half a kilo, half a ton. Deadlift action is, is an action that engages so many different muscles in your body, and uh, that's why it's such a good exercise to do. He had, I mean, this guy, he can't weigh more than, say, 120 kilograms, right? So, I mean, I'm, I'm being very generous here in my estimations of him. Half a ton, and his body was literally on the verge of exploding. That's how much stress and strain you put under. When I finish the show today, I'll, I'll put this all together in a, in a blog post for you, so you'll see the, the video of, of Eddie doing this. It is just crazy what the stress you, you can put yourself through. 500 kilograms, 1,102 pounds, Staggering, eh? Absolutely staggering. Right. Otherwise, just to quickly wrap up the rest of the weekend sport, Lewis Hamilton is now just one point behind the driver's classifications for the F1 this year because Nico Rosberg, well, he got some um, curious on this. and I'm sure he's as confused as I am. His pit crew told him not to engage. I think it was sixth gear because he's got some transmission problems to which he was saying, well, you know, what am I supposed to do about that? And they Gave him this information over the team radio. Now, the team radio, from my understanding, and the little bit of F1 that I watch, is always stuff like that. It gives you team orders. It tells you to be easy on your tires. It tells you uh, split exchanges where the guys are in front or behind you. So why can't they talk about gearboxes? This seems like the stupidest thing. Why is F1 always going to complicate everything for itself? Anyway, so he was given a 10-second penalty, Rosberg was, after that, which meant that for Verstappen, the, the young Verstappen, Max Verstappen, sorry, he came second. He probably drove better than Rosberg all day. Rosberg gets had a faster car. So they they finished the race. Uh Rosberg was second. Verstappen was third. But the overall classification with a 10-second penalty was that Rosberg dropped in the third. Hamilton led from start to finish. It was a pretty interesting race because, you know, England being England, it rained heavily throughout the early stages. Leading up to the start. And then within 30 minutes, they had all three tyres to the cars. They had the wet weather tyres with the big treads they had the intermediates and they went down to slicks. And you got to see it all within the first half hour. It was very, very interesting that. And Hamilton, well, he ran supreme at, at he ran supreme at that track. Excuse the terrible pun. There was no intention that whatsoever, I promise. So he's not just one point behind Rosberg, and huge momentum, that's four wins, the guy's pretty much unstoppable, and Tour de France wise, well, if you are into cycling, that last stage was was quite something. These poor dudes, they start the stage at about 30 degrees, it's hot, it's sweltering, it's French heat, it's a lovely summer's day. They ended with hailstones pelting them at the top of the mountain. So it's, there's so many different dynamics in this whole cycling, uh, this race, you know, there's a the team dynamics, there is the sort of race trade that goes with it, and there's a the different kind of stages, of course. You know, when it goes into the mountains, the sprinters are out the way and then when it goes into the flats well the sprinters get back into it that pretty much is the wrap of your headlines i'll catch you back after this and we're going to get keegan Kruger on the line from soccer and he's going to bring us all the big catch-up from the euros and beyond but first you have it and sometimes you don't auto trader gives you the choice now you can shop Compare and buy new cars. Watch our expert video reviews and research before you buy. Auto Trader New Car. The choice is yours. Indeed, the choice is yours. Now, um, we're missing Duncan today in the production booth. He is not with us. Um, Sibangile, production crew. Are we looking at telephone? Are we on? Is Keegan with us? Okay, sorry. I haven't got your mic on either. Sorry. Uh, you, you, you're going to call him now? Okay, okay, very good. Yeah, don't consult with us today. Uh he's a big part of the show. He he holds the reins in the background. But uh Gill Giller is ably assisting me today. Yeah, so that was the first half hour. Hope this is going well. These awkward little sort of padding uh moments. So yeah, all the things I've mentioned today I'll 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 have the clips on the bounce of C there afterwards. So you can see the bullfighter who didn't fight so well. Uh you can see the guy deadlifting. He deadlifted really well. And uh, you can see the end of the Euros basically went like this. Okay, so it was... Alright, Keegan, you with us?
1: Hi, Ben.
0: Yeah, how's it man? Sorry for the little delay there. Right, so, no worries. so we've had, we've had Keegan on before and I'm sure you've enjoyed his insights. Keegan is, uh, he's one of the writers at Soccer Laduma, Duma, as long as being a, a prolific blogger in his own right. Now Keegan, how the hell did Portugal win this thing? I'm still trying to work it out. <laughs>
1: um your guess is it's probably as good as mine. Um uh, pretty much, I'm quite shocked. I've actually been the whole morning, been sitting, asking myself the same question: how, how this came about. Um, France definitely had enough chances to go and win that game outright. It just didn't stick, and nothing, nothing went into the back of the net at all.
0: Yeah, it was kind of odd because you kind of thought that, alright, Portugal, they've got, it's kind of like watching the Stormers. They know they can't outscore you, but they'll try to grind you down. Uh, they'll use extra time, they'll use penalties, they'll do whatever they can. But France, you know, with the, with the way they've been going forward and the goals they have scored, I mean, they beat Germany 2-0. Any team that can do that is pretty bloody good. So you always thought that even if they weren't playing great, there would be a chance for Gala Griezmann. And true as nuts, there was. He missed an absolute sitter of a header. But now I want to just go back prior to that. What was your take on Ronaldo leaving? Did did, did Portugal win without Ronaldo, or did they win because they didn't have Ronaldo?
1: Jeez, that's a tough one. I, personally, I thought that um, they looked a bit more organised when they went off the park. It's almost like um, they showed themselves up a little bit more. They, they they got a lot tighter, you know, defensively. Everyone sort of worked a little bit harder in in, in a sense, and. Uh, Obviously, not having Ronaldo on the park and takes away quite a bit of the attacking threat um, because it was this whole tournament's basically be being him and Nani uh, doing most of the attacking, and it just seems that yeah, I know there's lots of reports and it's a whole cliche thing about you know the side rallied together and won won the match for him and that, but they honestly did look a better unit without him. That's what, that's what I thought and. The one thing that Portugal have done, and and, and you've just touched on it now, is uh, they've been able to defend really, really well this tournament. And uh, guys, that probably you lose lose their head quite, quite often, with like the Pepe's and the Bruno Alves's. I mean, they've been quite good this tournament. They've really been calm and composed. And I guess it's it's one of those things where if you show yourself at the back uh, and you defend well, you can win major tournaments. And, I guess we've seen that in
0: other sports as well. well it kind of, it's almost taking like a rugby kind of uh, look at things around the sort of two thousand and three, two thousand and seven era of the World Cups. But it does for me just highlight a massive thing that that um, teamwork. I mean, obviously this is like like no shit, but teamwork has never ever come to the fore quite like it has in Euros. When you think of what Wales did in the face of teams like Port- um, like Belgium. And what Iceland did in the face of whatever challenge they had, uh, except for France, and then Portugal somehow. I mean, the, the coach—they couldn't do anything in that group stage. They looked so shoddy. Uh, Ronaldo came good against Hungary, and that basically was their saving grace. But the coach was still like, "Hey, we're we still going to make the final. I'm, you know, I'm—I've postponed my holidays for this because I know we're going to the final. So it's like it's so cool to see a teamwork dynamic like that coming through, especially in football when so much is made of individuals.
1: Yeah, I think it's great for football. Do you know, just in general, I mean, there's so much emphasis being put on the star players. And, you know, uh, I know we look at we look at teams like Wales and oh, everyone goes, it was a one-man team, Gareth Bale. But, uh, you know, if you look at it deeply, like you say, it, it wasn't a one-man team. It was everyone working, bloody hard for each other throughout the tournament. Um, Iceland was exactly the same. Portugal, it hasn't been about Ronaldo, really. I know... Sure the papers and everyone else made it about Ronaldo, but their whole effort was, it was a unit at the at the end of the day. And I think, you know, for me, which is great, and, I, and I'm so happy to see it, that we finally see the tournament now where Minos are starting to step up and, and take charge in that. And, and hopefully now for the rest, um, you know, for more major tournaments coming up, we're going to see more minor sides and more sides believing that with teamwork, it doesn't matter what stars you come up against. If you're a better team, you will progress quite far in, in tournaments, and I'm hoping that maybe it's something that one, some of the African teams can can rally around, and especially in a World Cup where you know we don't see many African sides really compete well on that major front. And sure. we've got a World Cup in 2018 coming up, and uh, maybe it's you know could be some exciting stuff going forward.
0: But it really is just maybe that we look back on 2016 in football stage. You know, Leicester showed it as well. We haven't got the best team here. But the team work was exceptional, same with Portugal. So, now, I, I, there's so many things I still want to chat to you about the Euros, but just very quickly to the transfer market. Do you reckon any of this would get a, a bearing on the transfer market with teams thinking, you know, screw it, why must we pay so much money for these guys? We must maybe change our focus, maybe put some more resources around game dynamics rather than dynamic players.
1: I, I would hope it would, would, do, or would we go that way, but unfortunately, you know, club football is such a different dynamic these days. Um, It's not really um, just about the sport. It's about the business at the end of the day. And, Mm. you know, clubs want shirt sales. You know, they want revenue from sponsorships. And uh, for you to get those things, you need the big players. You need players that can attract that. And uh, I don't know if we're going to see many clubs go along that way. I'm pretty sure a lot of clubs will want to try and and hop on on the Leicester bandwagon where you get a very experienced coach in and you... uh, you hopefully you hope that he builds a a team um, of either, as people like to call it, has-beens or flops. They've been all over the world. and They come to play for you, and you're able to turn them into into a title-winning team. But I think the big clubs, if you look at it, it's all about revenue these days, and and uh, shirt sales and things like that. And a lot of the times, you see these transfers being made just because they know they can get a couple of more out of selling a few shirts.
0: Yeah, well, I guess I mean a while ago, Beckham's deal with Real Madrid was essentially paid for in the back of shirt sales. So we look at someone like Pogba, who obviously is massively overvalued right now. You know, I think when when Real Madrid pull out of a negotiation kind of thing, that's when you just know the price has gone too high for these guys not to not to care anymore. So it just proves a point. But you know, Man United are buying for so much more, or potentially buying him for so much more than his abilities. Just to get back to the tournament now, as far as looking back, what were your sort of big surprises? What are the things that, in your opinion, sort of really surprised you this tournament-wise?
1: Oh, I think tournament-wise, the one thing, or I already mentioned it before, the minnow the whole minnow situation really stood out for me, this tournament, and how well-organized they looked. Um, You know, we always have this... um, sort of opinion that uh, these smaller sides are just there to make up numbers at times. And, and smaller nations really rocked up this tournament and they played good football. I mean, even Hungary, they, they really played very good football at times and, and you can't take that away from them at all. Um, I think another thing that showed us, well, what pointed out to me is I think the standard of the, of the bigger sides dropped quite a bit. Um, I, I don't believe the big sides were really at their best. And I don't know if that's complacency or they just weren't um, prepared well enough. Or maybe it is that the, the smaller nations are improving and they're improving rapidly at this stage. So I think that's a bit of a worry. Um, to be honest with you, I think we can all agree that the final wasn't um, very exciting at all. And uh, it had pretty much of a 2010 World Cup feel to it. Um,
0: it's not often the case, though.
1: Yeah. It, 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 yeah, it was a bit... There was something lacking about it. And I think... Oh, one of the things that worried me a bit was also the the lack of goals being scored. If we look at the group stages, there weren't many goals being scored around, and I think that's something to look at, look at and, and, and sort of wonder why did the teams get defensively better? Uh, I'm not so sure. Maybe more on attack, they're probably a hell of a lot more poorer than than what they were in, in recent years.
0: Well, if you were to compare it to, say, the 2014 World Cup in Brazil, goals scored per match, I think you're looking at over three on average per game. Here, it was just a touch over two. Yeah, It, it yeah. really was that there was a massive divide between the two. Just very quickly going through, like you say, like some of the big teams weren't so great, just quickly looking at Germany. One of the best development systems known to man, that that German national team. But still, I mean, they couldn't get any bloody strikers. That was their downfall against France. It's kind of been one of those things that the game is so strong you almost overlook it. But this is rare tournament where you know it became the Achilles' heel.
1: Yeah, I think they missed the big, you know, the big number nine up front, and that that when they did find him, which he was in the squad the whole time. Gomez, unfortunately went to go and pick up an injury, and you know they really did look a lot different than they had. Park. I think another thing where probably they lacked a little bit was their fullbacks. I mean, when you have a guy like Philip Long that retires from the national side, I mean, that's a massive loss. You don't just quickly um, replace a player of that stature. And he's probably still one of the best fullbacks in the world, even at his age. So um, I think there's a few areas that that were highlighted in this tournament there's where sides really lack. And um Maybe it's, it's areas. Maybe it's good for football, good for their football, because they can go back now and really try and develop um, players for those areas which they which they've been lacking. Um, if you look at uh, even Italy, Italy probably surprised or surprised a lot of us at how well they played. But if you think about it, um, that's a really aging midfield that they have there with De Rossi that's still there, and you know, and there's a few guys around hanging around. Their strikers aren't very young either. Pele is like 30 years old already. You know, it's a very it's a very aging squad at on The back four, I think, are all in their mid twenties already. So, you know, they got a lot of rebuilding and reshuffling. If you think about it, for for years to come, um, yeah, we 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 can't really talk about England because England were a good old England. It doesn't matter what type of a team they send out; they just seem to implode every tournament. Yeah. and uh, yeah, I, I think there's there's a few things that I think a lot of countries sort of picked up areas which which they need improving. And um, possibly it could make a very interesting World Cup coming up, um, as you would think they would go and work on those areas and go and try find a striker or go find a fullback, or go find a midfielder um, for the up-and-coming years.
0: Well, I guess that the World Cup isn't, you know, it's a little bit too far away to take too much of the Copa America and the Euros now as far as picking a favourite. But you've got to think, Argentina have sort of kicked on a bit. Uh, well, obviously Messi will, will come back. I mean, it was an emotional kind of thing. Um, I think after being found guilty of tax, I think he's looking to put his name right in any, any which way possible right now. So you've got to think on current form, you'd say, right, probably I'll go with Argentina being the, 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 favorites. Germany have fallen away but Portugal, I don't know if they can keep this heroics up. You know, what's that squad going to do? What's Ronaldo's good play, role going to be in it? Is there anyone else you're kind of looking at after those two big tournaments to kind of say, well, you know, maybe these guys are the next world champions?
1: Yeah, you know, it's it's, it's tough to, to pinpoint right now. But if you look at, I think, like you say, you've got to look, keep looking at Germany. I mean, that squad is will still be very much in their peak coming two years' time. Um, I think Chile has got a wonderful generation this point in time, and they've just proved it again, winning back-to-back Copa Americas. Uh, they know mugs, and it's, and it's not by fluke that they've they've got these great results. Um, in Europe, it's very difficult. You know, I always say you can never count on an Italian side, but you don't know how this Italian squad's going to look in two years' time. Yeah. Um, Belgium seemed to have... they found a bit of form later in the tournament, and then uh, sort of it disappeared again. I mean, they didn't pitch up for a game against Wales, or I think they pitched up to the game thinking it was already won. Mm. Um, so maybe with a new coach and new ideas, that could be quite dangerous going going forward.
0: Well, you almost feel like, and, uh, you almost feel like, like Belgium could become the new Portugal. They had Portugal and they had all their stars, right? They couldn't win. Then they went through like the d- Belgiums and they've won with a squad. No one gave a chance to. Maybe Portugal, so Belgium needs to lose their stars, find an era of nobodies and then they'll finally win something.
1: That, that, that could exactly be the case. Now, and... To be honest with you, the French squad is a great squad. Um, it's a really, really good, good squad. And, you know, there's, there's terrific players. And I think Deschamps got caught in the moment a bit last night. I think uh, his substitutions were poor. Um, I think uh, he felt the pressure just as much as the players did from the fans. And, and I think he got his substitutions wrong. And, and that, you know, I think that cost him at the end of the day as well. Um, I think uh, we don't, not too sure if he's going to stay hang around or not. But uh, there's no talks that he's going anywhere. So yeah. maybe a disappointment in the final is, is, you know, what he need what he needed to sort of you know, kick on and, 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 you know, prepare the side well and make sure his sides are balanced throughout the tournament and things like that. And I guess we've seen it in in, in different sports in, in the rugby and in cricket, like you sometimes need to lose a final to to sort of understand uh, what what you've done wrong or, you yeah. know, to learn from it at the end of the day. And I think coaches Maybe he, he's the one. I mean, uh, I was very surprised, obviously, that France didn't it. and not win The squad, the type of football that they played, I think we can all agree that they probably played some of the most fantastic, or the amazing, look, wonderful-looking football around. Sure. Um, so, yeah, it would be interesting to see. I think France, uh, I wouldn't write them off for the next World Cup just yet. I think if they can keep together and, and keep strong, they'll be they'll be up there, I think.
0: Cool, Keegan. Well, we've got to, we've got a pinch it off there, unfortunately. But, uh, yeah, we can find more of you, uh, soccerladuma.co.za and, of course, as well as the thepunnets.co.za, right? That's it. Yeah. And then
1: Keegan,
0: it's, uh, Keegan going he, into transfer
1: window? Yeah. <laughs> so well,
0: busy. I mean, look, there was, there was another 20 minutes if we had it. So, I mean, we'll catch up with you again soon. <laughs> Thanks so much for your time, Keegan. Yes, Cool, that's Keegan Kruger there. Uh, we're going to get into, into golf. It's our last thing. Uh, oh, hang on a second. Uh, producer Jane is going to call up Barry. And uh, while she does that, ever remember a guy called Todd Hamilton? No, not Tad Hamilton. That was a bad movie. Todd Hamilton.
2: The picturesque seaside resort of Trun on the west coast of Scotland was the setting for the 133rd Open Championship. Favourite for the 2004 title was Ernie Ells. And the South African was in form, making the notorious par 3-8, the postage stamp, look easy on his first try. <laughs> By the fourth round, however, a less well-known American was closing in on L's. Todd Hamilton, the overnight leader on day three, would be the one to watch in the final round. All eyes were on the world number one Tiger Woods.
0: Blah, 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 blah. Anyway, uh, Todd Hamilton, the timing didn't work out there, but Todd Hamilton won a British Open. He won the Open. Since then, well, he's just been the guy who won the Open. Barry, we are back at Royal Troon this week. Do you see another Todd Hamilton fairy tale story happening? Barry, hello? Jane, are we good there? Jane? Jane, I don't think we got Barry? Okay, how about now? Okay, Barry, you you with us now? I am now. Okay, very good. Sorry, D- Duncan's not here. Jane Jane's doing a good job, but uh, anyway, here we are. So, like I was saying, I, I introduced you with uh, with a clip of Todd Hamilton. Now, people have, ah, have, have forgotten yeah. who Todd Hamilton was, but he was the he guy that kind one. of he was the kind of guy who broke um, Ernie's heart at Troon. What? Well, a hundred percent. And we actually um
2: funny you say that we've got a, a, a story uh in our July issue about that because that really was the, the dagger in Ernie's heart. I think had Ernie won there like everyone expected him to, he would have gone on to win, you know, maybe seven or eight majors instead of the four he has now and probably unlikely to, to win any more. Yeah. Um he uh that really you know, the the heartbreak that year oh four, um, Mickelson beating him at the at the Masters um, in the final pairing at uh, the U.S. Open a few months later and shooting 80 with, with Jeff Horson going on to win there. And then uh, he he really was playing some of the best golf of his life. And I think most significant about that period in 03-04 was when you know Tiger didn't win any majors and he was rebuilding his swing with Pankaney. So he need, really needed to take advantage in those years and, um, and he didn't. So uh, I think that's the one that really hurts the most if he reflects on his career now.
0: Well, if you look at the open itself, you know, the moment I see Todd Hamilton, I remember a guy called Ben Curtis as well, right? I can't remember the year, but he was, he came out of nowhere. I mean, you were seeing the, the
1: year before, actually. Yeah. Was it?
0: Yeah. The year before you were seeing the leaders all day and suddenly it was another crossover to some American guy who actually got the lead on the 18th and the guy stuffed it in there and he won. So, you know, I, I think I know what the answer is going to be, but do you see any outsider coming close to these fairy tale stories this week?
2: Yeah. Uh, again, it's, it's, uh, Troon offers that because you know, the, the the to to people that are not familiar with the Open, um, it's on a, um, a a rotation of nine different courses. Well, um, eight now after Muirfield, but um, <laughs> they uh, the, the last three winners at Troon have actually been kind of uh B list winners, so to speak. You know, Hamilton, and before that was Justin Leonard, who was you know a top player, but uh, only won one major, and before that. Um, 89 was um, Mark Calcovetia, who beat Greg Norman in the playoffs. So, right. um, Troon has, it's quite uncanny that it, it has the, the ability to to uh, produce these kind of B-list winners. But having said that, um, Arnold Palmer, uh, Tom Watson, and our own Bobby Locke also won at Troon. So, but it's it's just, uh, it's quite interesting that the last three uh, Troon champions have been uh, kind of less prominent uh, players.
1: You know, the, the thing about the
2: Open is that it's, it's different to the other majors in that, um, the, the, your, your draw, uh, of where you play on the, when or what time of the day you play on the Thursday or the Friday, the first two rounds is, is crucial because you can get very unlucky or lucky depending on the wind. You know, you can play late on Thursday and the wind can be blowing and, um, then you're off Friday morning early and it can still be blowing and then it can drop for the uh, remainder of the field because they, they start on the first, Six thirty in the morning, and they carry on right until uh, three thirty. So um, it's, it's it might not seem fair to um, a lot of people, but you know what, golf's not fair.
0: Well, exactly. So, it's uh, Never yeah. trying to be fair.
2: <laughs> that's, yeah. that's how the open works, and you can you can get very unlucky with the draw.
0: Well, if you just look at looking at the the weather, just a little scan over here, it's not looking great. It's looking like it's going to rain pretty much a majority of the time here. If I'm just going through the weather uh doesn't look like it'd be a whole bunch of wind but there's enough in there to make it interesting yeah look these are these are the factors this is what what makes the the open such a great thing of course here living in sa it's finding a time zone that we can watch every hole which is really really great but now just to get on onto the favorites now you said about you know this weather and there's different considerations to to take in does this open it up to say guys who had no chance in say a u.s open or not likely to win a u.s masters coming through this week
2: uh, yeah, I think that open very much is an open, you know, you, you, there's, there's quali- pre-qualifying on, on all sorts, uh, on all continents around, the, on all of the continents around the world, sorry. Um, and it, it really is the most kind of um, inviting uh, tournament in, in golf for, for people to, uh, for, for the, the pros to Participate in, and yeah, I mean we've seen it as you said. You know, Ben Curtis can, uh, you, you can get lucky, and, and when you realise the situation you, you're in and, and hold your nerve, um, guys have been known to 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 hang on. World um, Troon itself is not, you know, one of the most glamorous links. Um, it's it's certainly not as pretty as some of the, the the other kind of great British and Irish links, but it certainly is very tough. And the key about Troon is it's an out and back course, so you play nine holes in one direction, and then turn and, and, uh, and head for home. And it, uh, it's very, if the prevailing wind blows, it's downwind the front nine. So you'll see um, more than likely a lot of low scoring on the front nine, and then the whole key is, is having to, to keep your score on the way back. The, yeah. the finish is very tough at Trin. so um, You might find on Sunday if someone goes out early and, and can post a, a clubhouse lead and the wind gets up, um, it could be very interesting viewing. But as you say, uh, quite like you say, then you know the, the open comes. at such a great time for us because it's winter and um, there's so much other great sport happening as well. You get you get you know coverage from nine o'clock in the morning till you know seven eight in the evening, and there's you know there's there's, there's other sport going on uh, with twitter tour de France and cricket, and it's just a time of the year when there's so much sport on. So it it really is um, fantastic viewing for us and. Uh, just on that, it's the first year that Sky are, Sky Sports are, are um, broadcasting in the open. They've taken over from the BBC. So there could be some interesting innovations in the, the broadcast that we see here
0: sure. um,
2: from, from years gone by. Uh, one of the things is uh, there's a, a famous hole at True and Lead postage stamp, um, which is the, it's named the postage stamp. It's the past three-eighth uh, shortest hole in the course with a tiny green. Hence the name postage stamp. Mm-hmm. And, um, it's, it's, it's got a magnificent amphitheater amp- for, uh, you know, crowds to, to surround the green. But the so sky have, um, installed a, a, a cable to get, uh, aerial footage of the, um, of the hole. And, um, they bunk, there are cameras in all the bunkers that surround the green. So I think, you know, like Fox Sports took over the, the US Open. And seeing, um, you know, really kind of cool graphics and features from them, uh, the Pro Tracer, for instance, I think we, there's going to be quite a lot of tech um, that we'll be able to see in modern technology uh, in Sky's broadcast, which is quite
0: exciting. Brilliant. I mean, uh, all tournaments have that flight scope now, which has been a massive, massive addition to the yeah. viewer, especially in these conditions, because, you know, we we'll see the ball. Just to go through the, the favorites very quickly, um, Barry, now obviously look at world rankings, uh, you look at, I mean, how these odds are down pretty much on that. I don't see Jason day as, as a favorite here. I, I really don't. I think he's maybe falling away a bit. just yay or nay on that one.
2: Uh, yeah, I agree with you actually. I, um, you know, look, anybody in the top 10 is always a contender at majors because the top 10 is on, on current form. Yeah, sure. So you've got to look at them, you know, days, high ball flight, um, yep. could be a problem in, in the wind this um, afternoon. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna go for two guys here. I like Stenson. Um, He does have uh, in the past in majors he has had issues with putting uh, coming down the stretch, but uh, Troon really is such a ball strike course that I think uh, he could hold up. And then I'm gonna go with Justin Rose. Um, Barry, try
0: you got to go for Sergio Garcia for ball striking. Come on.
2: I know you have deliberately put that in there to upset my Monday morning, but we're gonna we're gonna go with Rose. And here's why: okay. England, for some reason, England sport is English, well, yeah, English sport is particularly it is on a high at the moment. I don't know why, and I don't know who has allowed it. But um, you know, their rugby team, uh, the, the, the cricketers. I'm sure they're gonna roll over Pakistan this weekend. Um, it, uh, Danny Willett winning the Masters. It's almost like it's their time. I'm sure Froome will, will win the, the Twitter de yeah, sure. Um and I just, yeah, I've just got a feeling that Rose is is not a, a, a one major uh, player. I think he has multiple majors in him, and uh, I just have a, a feeling it might be his week because of the, the English summer, so to speak, that they are that they're experiencing.
0: Okay, so you, so your your kind of two picks there, Stenson and Rose. I. Got a wholeheartedly disagree with you. I just don't think Stenson's ever going to win a major. It's one of those things. Okay. And I don't think Rose is really kind of – Got to grips with the swing since the back injury, but this is why um, this is why I've got to get you on because you know more. Okay. So I'm going to contest you on that. Well, I, I just I just personally think, Barry, this is no, it's not Sergio's time. It's never Sergio's time.
2: Yeah, but,
0: no, no, it's not. I mean, he'll find a way of throwing it away. You got to look at. I really think again, and this is the romantic in me, like a bit of an outsider coming through here, and I think it's going to be an American because as much as I love your theory about the English summer, I think this is the year. Obviously, USA get the right of cutback, right? Now all of a sudden, Dustin Johnson has become this like phenom in the game. I reckon yeah. there's going to be a, another outside American, or maybe not not a big outsider. I mean, a guy like Scott Pierce is in great form right now. How he can maintain manage his game? I just think it's going to be more around that. Um,
2: if- yeah, well, the Americans have have a great record in the last 20 years in, in the Open, so that's a very Plausible, um, you know, thing. I think we, let, we just need to, uh, mention the South Africans quickly. Um, we've got nine in the field. We had 10, uh, Yakef and Pantale pulled out last week. Interesting, uh, reasoning here, which is, yeah, um, Barry, uh, unf- unfortunately,
0: unfortunately we haven't got time to get into it, but it is, it's, it's very strange. I think you, you could have still played the open and still done the, the Olympics. Um, but yeah, like. Sure. but otherwise it's, it's essentially Grace and Ostes and our, our, our two, um, two biggest hopes here, right? Absolutely.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, Barry, I wish... be
2: Grace you... with his low, low ball flight uh, if the, if the conditions are
0: bad. Yeah. He had a decent, decent final round in the Scottish Open as well. So you got to think he is our top guy. He's our 10th ranked guy in the world as well. So he is our top guy in many, many forms. A guy like, uh, Brandon Stone though. First time out at the open. I can't wait to see him go as well. Um, yeah, Barry, unfortunately, this is, I'm going to stop putting you in, in the front of the show from, from now on because <laughs> we need an extra 30 minutes for golf. A lot of people say, Ben, no one cares about golf, but the right people do. And that is why I'll always have you on the show. Barry, thanks so much. Get the latest edition of Golf Digest. And then Thank follow uh, follow Barry on Twitter at Loose Impediment. That is Barry. He'll be all over the open this week. Uh, Barry, thanks so much for your time. I'm sorry again. I need to cut you off in a curtailed manner. No, worries. It's best. Right. That is it for the bounce show this week. You can catch everything on the bounce of at after at a rough the show. There'll be the podcast, all the videos, all the insights, all the details for my guests. I must leave you right now. Catch you back next week. Enjoy the open and catch me tomorrow. Go Cliff Show six till nine, cliffcentral.com. This is Cliffcentral.com. Cliff